Welcome to The Steadfast Life from Jake and Witt over at SteadfastLifeCoaching.com. Witt and I love sports, adventure, coaching, faith, growth, and above all, that fascinating space where all five come together. Let's see what that space has to offer us today. What's up, growth-minded friends? Today, Witt and I wanted to tackle kind of a tricky topic in the self-help, personal growth, self-coaching world, whatever you want to call it, there is a popular topic referred to as allowing emotion. I know, right? Who knew there was even an option to not allow emotion? (laughs) But whether you like calling it allowing emotion, sitting in it, feeling your emotion, honoring your emotion, the idea is That when we resist or judge our emotion, when we think that it shouldn't be there, we're actually making things more difficult in our lives. So Wit and I get poured into from basically four main places. And so I'm going to walk through them and I'm going to come at this from all four angles to try to make it as clear as possible. My plan is to establish the problems with resisting emotion, and then I want to get clear on what it means and when you might want to consider allowing the emotion instead. And then at the end, I'm going to go through some steps that you can use to practice the skill of allowing your own emotions in your life. Let's start with the world of Brooke Castillo. (laughs) Many of our friends, colleagues, coaches, and even some of our clients are from the Brooke Castillo School of Thought, from the Brooke Castillo world. And it's actually sometimes confusing when it comes to this idea of emotion. Because what we learn from this area is that we have the ability to choose thoughts that cause the emotions we want when we do the work in advance. And we also have the option to evaluate our life afterwards, especially those moments where the results are not what we were hoping for. And and we, we can learn to see the relationship between the thoughts we were thinking and what we felt. And, and we can go back and learn what we'd like to have happen in that event and what feeling might fuel that event and what thought we can use to get that feeling. And so it seems like we're really living in this space where rather than allowing our emotion, we're trying to control our emotion. But that's not always the case because there are these moments in your life where you uh, just got off the phone call that says a loved one has passed or you find out that you're fired or your wife says, I filed for divorce or maybe even something more simple where you just smell the fresh baked cookies when you've already decided not to eat any sugar today. Or maybe your friend tells you all those things the other girls say about you when you're not around. Those moments when the emotion has been triggered because the thought has been thunk. I may have just made up that word. In these times, Brooke describes the concept of allowing emotion. So I want to take her idea of allowing emotion. I want to add to it some input because the second place that we get our input is from experts through podcasts, seminars, books, lectures, masterminds, courses that we take. And recently I was listening to a lecture from Susan David where she mentioned the concept of psychological amplification. You've all experienced it. And I myself usually refer to it as the mosquito bite effect. But I suppose that psychological amplification sounds a bit more official. 
This is what I mean. When I was a kid and I didn't live in Texas where you get bit by mosquitoes on a daily basis, mosquito bites were something I associated with camping and adventure. Sure, I hated them, but they were a small price to pay for the adventure of finding out what's inside the cave, right? Sure, one time the answer was a bear, but I'll save that story for when my mom starts her podcast. Anyway, if a friend or sister, sorry Becky, had a mosquito bite, the meanest prank you could play on them was to touch it or scratch it a little or ask how many mosquito bites do you have or do you still remember that one on your arm? Because then it would go from something that wasn't too big of a deal to an itch that was intolerable. Why? Because now they were thinking about it. Now they were resisting the itch. That's the idea of psychological amplification. When we resist a feeling, when we fight against an emotion, when we set our jaw, clench our fists, crack our knuckles, and we stare at that cookie and we say, death first, we actually increase the emotion. We increase the desire for the cookie. The culprit in this whole scenario is the thought that desire is bad or that I must battle with desire in order to win. This research and a little personal experience with annoying insects teaches me that resisting the tough emotion, the sadness, the grief, regret, rejection, etc., it actually introduces suffering into my life that goes beyond the pain that I'm blaming for that suffering. It turns out that allowing the emotion is the better choice for an enjoyable experience and still leads me to the result I'm after. Brooke has actually told us multiple times in coaching sessions, pain is mandatory, but the suffering is optional. She's saying there is an unavoidable pain of life. Then there's the suffering we heap on ourselves by resisting and judging that pain. And the truth is, as Susan David puts it, inner pain always comes out. In other words, the suffering that I subject myself to by trying to resist this emotion and keep it inside, it's in vain. It has no upside. It doesn't work. So let's check in on this idea from another source of wisdom for Wit and I. Number three, for those of you keeping track at home, and it confirms psychological amplification. It is the Bible, or as I like to think of it, the wisdom of the best life coach, Coach Christ. This is from Romans chapter 7. It says, Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, You must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding of the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life. You see what's going on there is this idea of exposing that something is wrong or something should not be done. That's when the resistance comes up. Resisting coveting is what Paul is describing. And it just, it awakens the power of sin in his life. He says, the power of sin came to life. So clearly resisting instead of allowing tough emotion decreases our overall experience in life by increasing the suffering from that emotion. 
But in all honesty, that's not even the worst part. The biggest negative that comes from resisting emotion is that we lose the ability to deal with life on life's terms. And when we lose that ability, buffering looks really tempting. So we've got all the negative side effects that come from the buffering. And now we're missing out on the authentic experience of being alive because we're buffering out the negative emotions, the tough emotions. We're not really here and we're not building our capacity to feel those tough emotions. So once we're no longer willing to feel the tough emotions that's, that are in life, we give away our opportunity to live a life of meaning or to leave the world a better place. We have left the arena. Susan David has one of the best lines I've ever heard regarding this. She says that in counseling sessions, people tell me all the time, I don't want to feel this anger, fear, disappointment again. And I tell them, yes, I understand. But those are dead person goals. A little bit of a mic drop right there. So here's the question. How do we know when to manage emotion and when to allow emotion? The simple answer is that once the emotion is present, you want to allow it. If you're anticipating or remembering it, probably best to manage it. Because once the emotion is present, once the vibration is in your body, your chest tightens, your breathing quickens, your face is hot and your throat closes a little bit, that is what we call game day. And this is where the fourth fountain of knowledge that pours into steadfast life comes in. Sports. We could take this concept and break it down into practice, game day, and then the old film room. Here, the value of allowing emotion is highlighted even more clearly because you would never notice that you were feeling tired during a basketball game and then ask for a timeout to go to the sideline and run sprints to get back in shape real quick. When it's game day, it's time to show up with the preparation and the confidence that you've got available now. There is a volleyball player named Karch Karai, who I believe was the best of all time and possibly the best volleyball coaching mind of all time. And recently he was asked if he approaches uh, serve receive, learning serve receive differently in a game versus a training situation, game day versus practice. And he said, as a player, I wanted to focus a lot less on the technical aspects of the game once I was competing versus what I might have focused on when I was in training. Generally, I found that a lot of specific feedback on technique tended to get in the way. That's a tough time to be making lots of adjustments. Generally, I feel like I'm going to compete better and a lot of the players I coach will compete better when they get into a competitive situation and they know they've done the work, they've built a good foundation, they have a game they can trust, and they will just trust that. Now, there might be space for a quick reminder or for a question, but it's a fine line. We mostly talk about what's going to make the opponent feel under pressure and uncomfortable. So let me, let me translate that into this life coaching concept. What he's saying is that what they focus on in game day is not so much the technique, but what's going to serve them, what's going to serve the team, what's going to make it better. And so that's what we want to be looking at. Not so much, can we get the reps in to make this emotion go away, or can we prevent this emotion once it's already happened? Those are reps that happen either before the game or after the game. 
But, but in the game, we just want to focus on what serves us most at that moment. And what he says is one, do the work Two, build a good foundation. So this is practice, evaluation, adjustment, past performance, looking at all those things. And then three, have a game you can trust. That's the linchpin to the whole thing. You want to have a game you can trust when it's your emotional game day. So let's take a look at how to build that. I want to start with a framework that came from another Olympian, Nicole Davis. And she's currently one of my coaches in a mastermind. And she responded to one of my questions about this. And she said, part of my philosophy is to risk wisely. I've got a great relationship with risk. Building capacity for risk is much like how we train and trust in this course. Where are the edges of your capacity? What feels like it's just a little bit past your comfort zone? Wherever that is, lean into it and go for it and be open to learning something about yourself while in that space. When you do that consistently, the edges of your capacity expand. What she's describing is this concept of how to approach life where when the tough stuff happens, negative emotion in this case, or tough emotion, that when we lean into it, and we find the edges of our capacity to allow that emotion, we actually take our capacity and we expand it. We increase our capacity to feel this emotion for the future. It makes sense, doesn't it? Pushing just beyond your current capacity for a tough emotion will increase your capacity overall. But what does that look like? How do we specifically get a game we can trust on game day? Now, this is going to look different for everyone, and it's going to be different in various situations. But what I've done is sort of compiled from our four sources of steadfast wisdom, some concrete steps that you can take to practice the skill of allowing emotion. First, be authentic. Be open to what you're really feeling without judging it good, bad, appropriate, inappropriate, nothing like that. You can do that after. You can do that in the film room. Practice thinking nothing has gone wrong. Step two, breathe. This communicates to your brain that you are okay. After your ancestor's breath was fast and furious because they were running hard to escape the saber-toothed tiger and they finally made it back to the cave, what is the first thing that your great-great-great-grandma did? Big inhale. Big exhale you're safe. And your brain still likes that. Third, radically accept emotion. Stop arguing about whether or not the emotion should actually be there and accept it. The purpose of this is building emotional resiliency. And when you focus on that, when you focus on the why, the desire for emotional resiliency, it will help you redirect away from that judgment. Fourth step, get accurate and name it. Practice differentiating between stress and dread, for example. Accuracy has been shown to activate your ability to take important action. Researchers called it your readiness potential. The fifth tip is to learn what it is teaching. Practice staying curious. Your emotion will reveal what you value. And clarity on what you value is your path to value-aligned action. Take on the perspective of a detective or, or a scientist. What exactly is going on in my body right now? What is it teaching me? What is different from other similar emotions? You'll feel the curiosity join the party instead of just the pain and suffering. 
Number six, talk to yourself like you would to a close friend. You're safe and you're strong. You're strong enough to feel this emotion and you're courageous enough to stay willing. Take your time. Honor the experience. You've got this. Does it feel a little strange to think of talking to yourself like that? Of course it does. It's the opposite of how you were taught and the opposite of how you practiced all your life. It's time to stop being so mean. Number seven, keep your power. At the end of the day, you own your emotion. It doesn't own you. You're allowing emotion, not being a slave to it. A good practice to help with this is to just watch your specific language. Instead of saying, I'm sad, try, I notice the feelings of sadness. The sadness isn't who you are, not even in that moment. The bottom line is that game day is going to show up, and often without warning. In my opinion, Karch hit the nail on the head. Do the work, build your foundation, have a game you can trust, and then trust it. Thanks for joining us today. It is always our hope that this little journey together leaves you feeling empowered, inspired, or simply stirs up your craving to live a little bigger. If you want more, you want to go deeper, you want to ask a question, or you know someone who might be able to access more joy with a little bit more steadfast in their life, then please head over to SteadfastLifeCoaching.com and let's get connected. Have fun out there.